Zig coming in at the top of the interview. Today on the show, we have Josh Cater, most known for his work with um, the Smoking Popes, also with his work with the Vol and uh, his solo career, which there goes Noodle, which we're here to talk about. Um, he has a new album coming out called The Hideout Sessions. It was recorded at The Hideout in Chicago, which is an intimate venue. And as we know, all um, all venues are struggling at this moment. You've heard me rant about the Grog Shop in the Beachland. Um, this was a this is a Bandcamp release connecting everything. It's connecting community. It's connecting awareness of these venues, and it's got a unique personnel. And they do a cool version of um, Smoking Pope's tunes, where they kind of did a spin on some of them, and they also do some uh, old standard real book covers, which is very fitting for um, the crooning aspect of uh, his style of singing. This interview was really cool. I think I caught him at a moment where he was rushing. We had to push it back a little bit. But um, I really much enjoyed this conversation with Josh. And I appreciate the insights he shared with some of his insane, rad experiences with like groups such as the Foo Fighters and Morrissey. And we'll get into that in the interview. Um, Before we move along, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44. Studio 44, if you have any audio, video, or streaming needs, make sure you hit up Jay from Studio 44. Studio 44 can be located on Facebook at Studio 44 CLE or Studio 44 CLE at gmail.com, and Jay will get your stuff to sound as good as this. Um, also, if you can like, um, su- uh, subscribe, rate, review the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to these awesome, inspiring people, and sharing those insights with you. Um, also, we are now on the medias. We got the Instagram, the Twitter, the YouTubes, the uh, Facebook. And if you can give us a like there, that also helps uh, um, me reach more people to share those insights with you. So I appreciate you guys for listening. And here's my conversation with Josh. Thanks for uh, being willing to flex on the start time of this oh, for sure. uh, interview. I, I was at a, a band rehearsal at church okay that the, and the, the start time of the rehearsal got pushed back an hour and then i was like oh no <laughs> so that's why I, I got in touch with howard and asked him if we could push this back a half hour and stuff oh it's all good i with church bands i it's one with COVID. you know what i mean to get a group together the rehearse is already tricky and like right. uh, with the vastity of like a, a church group, everyone's got different schedule. You know, what I mean, it's it, it, it's hard to get everyone in one room in one place. So I totally get it. It is. It is. Plus, we have this uh, added sort of obstacle in that, um, like we we recently redid the um, the sanctuary, and it has like a new sound system. Oh boy! Because <laughs> we thought, you know, for when when the church shut down for several months um it seemed like a good time to to redo that since we weren't going to be using the sanctuary for a long time right um and then we just recently started to do uh in-person services again gotcha did you guys do the streaming stuff we did streaming for like several months um which was uh quite a an undertaking because we previously hadn't had any online services. So we had to like instantly switch to completely online. Right. But now we have this new sound system. And so the, the people are, are still kind of working the bugs out of the new system and the vocalists are trying to figure out how to get their mix right. And their avions that they're not even used to using. Um, Is that like, so there, there was a lot of like, uh, reasons why this thing was, 
bound to run long. So thanks for the extra time. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, it's an interest. That's a. I think that's a good place to start because like uh, adapting with everything that's been going on. Like I know a lot of churches off, offer like streaming services, and uh, yeah. it, but to to move into like where we're at now where everything's so dependent on it and if you didn't have that like from the ground up or at least some like inkling of a uh, we got some cameras and people can tune in but you know most people just come and hang out like to start that from the ground up when covid hit is like was it had to be a big undertaking cuz even just like the get the get like a camera switcher was like hard to do yeah well we we had the advantage of having a guy on staff who was um, a, a pretty good videographer and he knows how okay. to do editing stuff. And so what we decided to do was instead of doing a live stream with a switcher that we would record services during the week on multiple cameras. And then this guy would edit it together oh, okay. into a cohesive unit. And that, you know, so, so that we have a complete file that we're, that we're just pressing play on on Sunday for, for people to see it, um, which worked out really well, except for that. Um, this guy's whole life became like recording and editing these services, Yeah, you know, because it, it, he had like just hours and hours of editing work to do <laughs> to put all this stuff together. Um, and our goal, we're still doing it that way where he, he records stuff during the week, edits it together and shows it. Uh, we're moving toward the plan is to move toward a live stream where we can just take now that we're having in-person services where we can just take that and uh, do a live stream of it. But you need a switcher and you need the program where you can run lyrics at the bottom of the screen while right, showing right. the band and all that kind of stuff. And it's a lot. We're not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I uh, I've fallen into that because um, I'm uh, I'm a full time musician in Cleveland. And like it okay. do all the different type of circuits, like and do the nursing home gigs and the bar gigs, and during the day I'm a music teacher at a charter school, and like uh, when this all hit, like it was like, well, how does that work? <laughs> like, how do we stream? Everyone's now a sound person. Your audience is now employed to tell you if they can hear you. <laughs> like, yes, it was such a and when with a big ensemble, it's it's such a feat to do. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up hooking up with a buddy who uh, runs a studio who mixes all the podcasts. Um, and he, uh, me and him ended up developing a good team and like have done a lot of like webinars and streaming for like the Beachland ballroom and, uh, other venues around Cleveland to kind of keep them afloat. But it's, it's a different mindset and it's really kind of hard to like differentiate between the two. And I imagine with like a service when it's like, you're there with, you know, everyone's coming together as one there has to be a really weird kind of alienation of a of experience more so than maybe just a regular concert the the whole um transition to to doing things uh online has been a huge adjustment for everyone and i think i think probably the the biggest you know at least from I would say this is true of my of of the church uh, bands, but it you know it was it's also true of uh, you know the the album project that I just did for the hideout sessions where like 
you have to adjust to to playing in a room without an audience right and the whole uh shift in your your energy because you don't have you don't have a crowd to sort of uh feed off of as far as the exchange of energy it's almost like you you uh you almost wouldn't consciously realize how dependent you are on that in any kind of performance um like try, try doing the same thing uh with no one in the room or with like just a couple of camera people and somebody behind the soundboard but an otherwise empty room and still and still you know perform in a way that is actually going to come across on video it's a completely different animal um and it's it's a hard adjustment for a lot of people to make i'm a little more used to it because i've been in situations where you know i've been in a band that's playing like on on a tv show where there's not a studio audience you know so you have to kind of once you see the, that difference between what it feels like to be doing something and then what that action looks like when it's filmed and you're watching it again um the difference there can be startling at first and then you you realize that you can do things that might feel awkward or feel like they're too big or or too expressive um for the moment but they're gonna work when you watch them later or whoever is viewing it is not going to think of it as being too big right right that makes sense it, it, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't seem too big or too expressive, you know, if it was a room full of people, it would just be happening naturally. But the fact that no one's there and you're still doing it that way, you're like, is this weird? <laughs> well, that makes... And then it becomes this meta thing about like, what am I even doing? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> you know, it's weird. It's weird. Like with like a small. So when the audience is the the camera crew, how like how like more like you internalize certain things or like how with less people, uh, maybe I'm just speaking. I, I find myself to become a little bit more shy and uh, not yeah. comfortable. Cause with the room of people, you, you just go into it with that expectation of, well, whoa, who's ready. You know what I mean? Like yeah, right. there's that thing. And like when that's yeah. not there and you have to like make it be there. I that's a really you I think you put that in a really uh uh you put that in a really good way. That makes a lot of sense. You have to overcompensate to bring that feeling and in that moment it's gonna be weird, but post you're gonna be like, got it. <laughs> like uh they they're comfortable. Josh yep. <laughs> knows what he's doing. Yep, yep, yep. Did you did this totally. um kind of dev so let's I guess let's take a couple steps back. What can you tell me about speed stick? Oh wow. Speed stick. Yeah. I'm first of all, I'm trying to remember the last time someone that was interviewing me brought that up. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> nice. It does not often come up in an interview. Um what I can tell you about speed stick is that <clears throat> it was a band that my brothers and I put together uh when I was a senior in high school. And uh, it was kind of a, a uh, we we wanted to start playing at basement shows. There was there right. was a a band at our high school that 
you know, would just play like people's basements in the area in this out in the suburbs suburbs there where we were. And uh, we wanted to get in on that circuit. So we put this band together and uh, it was sort of in our minds, it was like a parody version of a hardcore punk band where it was almost like uh, it was inspired by Spinal Tap. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that the, the, the songs were, were essentially jokes. Uh, we would come up with a funny song title and then we would write the, write a song to go with it based on the sort of punchline of the song. And, uh, you know, we were, we did that for a year or two and then uh decided that we actually loved being in a band and wanted to keep going but it was time to get serious so we we changed our name but we had gone in to a, a local studio as speed stick and recorded like uh, a bunch of songs i think we recorded close to 20 songs got was that st- yeah. um solid studios no, 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 this was solid this sounds. was uh, before we got to Solid Sound. Okay, it was, was it... A, a a home studio that a guy gotcha. had in in Crystal Lake called Curved Air Studios. And we went in and recorded like eighteen songs and as Speed Stick, and that. But then when we decided to let's get serious and pick a better name, and be the Smoking Popes, we picked. I can't remember how many songs was it like five songs on our first. Uh, on that inoculator uh seven inch those those songs were recorded as speed stick but we went through and we we found like the least ridiculous five songs that we had and said do we do we have anything here in this in this batch of songs that could remotely be taken seriously because a lot of them were just like stupid jokes right but these were songs that were like no these these are kind of real songs (laughs) Um, so let's, let's put this out as Smoking Popes and have this be our, uh, inaugural effort. It's, 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 a almost more comforting, I'd imagine, like kind of approaching something as a joke, like we're minor, minor threat. And here's a, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like kind of a spin on it where it can just be fun. And like, it's not like this personal thing you're putting out, you know what I mean? That everyone has to like. Uh, so there, the, I guess the return of that is a little more comforting to, to to come out and be doing something silly with your brothers. That uh, um, there's no like you can't be like put down for it. You know, what I mean, it's, there's the 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 right. comedic aspect is like this cushion. Just go out there and have fun. Now, did you start playing and singing before all this, or was this like your first ex- uh, like oh cool we can we can partake in the our local scene and like hit some basement venues, which are usually the best shows ever. How can, was it that inspiration to start playing or was music involved before? Music was present, uh, in our, in my life and in our lives, uh, before that, uh, I had been in a band in my, in my last couple years of, uh, of junior high school. Okay. I was in a band called slave driver. (laughs) <laughs> okay <laughs> that, that uh i think we played like three shows and we never released anything and we, it was uh it was mostly covers we did a uh 
a motorhead cover uh of the song killed by death i remember we did uh, a, a cover of uh sweet leaf by sabbath we did uh uh flight of the icarus by uh, iron maiden because nice. a couple of the guys that yeah. i was in the band with were real like metlers right so they loved that kind of stuff and that's what we did but even before that I was writing songs and doing home demos of songs since I was about 11 years old. Wow. Um, and by home demos, what I mean is that we had two boom boxes. And if you remember back when boom boxers were really in their heyday, they would have a condenser mic on them. So yeah. you could just record, you, you could, you could press record and you could just, it would pick up whatever was happening in the room. So what I would do is I would uh, record myself playing a drum track on one boom box. And then I would put the two boom boxes like about three feet apart. <laughs> and I would play the drum track on the one boom box and record it on the other boom box. And I would play guitar along with it. And then I would take that and play it and record it on the other boom box, but, but play bass along with it. And then finally I would do that uh, and, and sing along with it. But so it was like this sort of crude version of multi-tracking. Right. But by the, by the time I was doing the, the vocals, like the drum track had been, recorded back and forth between two condenser mic boom boxes <laughs> it had to be you so know buried. three three times so that the, hey. the drums sounded like really uh ridiculously thin like you were hitting a a piece of paper with a pencil or something um and i don't know i none of those recordings i don't think exist anymore because they were all on cassettes that got right. lost over the years but but what a good practice to be able to hear all these different levels of things. And then, you know, when it gets time to put people together and try to figure out some maiden tunes, be like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, what is like, a, a, especially at like 11, I think back when I was 11, I wasn't doing anything that cool. Um, was music in the family? Like, did your parents introduce you to playing guitar or like, was this just something you kind of picked yeah. up? Yeah. No, our, our, our dad played guitar. Um, and he was, he played guitar and, and sang a little bit, like he was never in a band or anything, but right. he just, uh, there were times I remember being a little kid, like, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And my dad would get his guitar out and sit in the living room and play along with these song books that he would get of, of what were popular songs at the time. So I remember like him playing night moves by bob seger and looking at the sheet music for it and playing along with it and uh you know all three of us kids would kind of stand around and sing along with them and uh that being sort of a fun family activity yeah. and uh, both of our parents loved music a lot our dad had a lot of records like probably a couple hundred lps um, all on, on these uh, shelves in the living room. 
like they were low shelves. So as as kids, you know, we could we could look through these albums and and play any of it. You know, he gave us access right. to his stereo system. So like he had every Beatles record on vinyl. He had a bunch of Stones and Zeppelin and The Who and all these like what were then still like active bands. Right. Heavy bands. Um, heavy rock bands. But he also had like blues music. I remember uh discovering a bunch of things in his in his uh you know record collection like like Muddy Waters um and he had, you know, Frank Sinatra in there. I remember his listening to his his uh, copy of Sinatra at the Sands, and uh, a bunch of that kind of stuff. And then our mom liked country music, so she had every Kenny Rogers album and every uh, Willie Nelson album and Merle Haggard and Dolly Parton and um, that sort of thing. And so. You know, as kids, we we had access to all that kind of stuff, and not only hearing different styles of music, but also uh, interacting with recorded music in a in an important way. Like when you're a little kid and you're you're listening to a vinyl album, like when you know you're you're a small person, and so it's it's like a really big object, right? You know, an an album seems huge to you, and you're and you put it on, and then you're looking at this album cover that just seems like this enormous sort of poster that you're holding. Especially if it opens out into a gatefold. Yeah. And there's there's any kind of pictures on the inside, and so you listen to the album, and you're just lost in this world of of looking at these pictures. You know, back before the internet, uh, this was how uh this is how you kind of this was the image of these artists that you has had was the pictures that they were putting on these albums you know like when i when i first started buying like acdc records i'd never seen an acdc video uh i just would listen to their music and i would look at the pictures um you know like uh on their album high voltage right. there were these little i don't even, do you, you remember that record. album yeah my first like it's it was that your first band that you bought the record to was acdc because that was mine no uh, uh <laughs> it was it was one of the first but the very first was thin lizzy nice equally as cool <laughs> but anyway so yeah when you're looking it's, it's it is all immersing these big records and that's that's it that's that's who's making the sound but, um, right, and so you, and so on the back of the album High Voltage, if you remember, there there's pictures of the individual band members, but they're like in the form of um, almost like Polaroid pictures. Yeah, yeah. And then going along with each one of those pictures, there's like a a fake uh, letter. Like there's there was like next to the picture of Angus, there was like a letter from his like school principal that was supposed to be like a letter oh, that was yeah. like sent home to his yeah, parents. I do remember that about <laughs> how he had misbehaved or bitten somebody in class or something like that. And like, I think I was too young to really understand that that was, uh, that that was all tongue in cheek. Right. That was a bit. And so I'm like, <laughs> I just thought that I thought that maybe those stories were real and <laughs> these little awesome. Polaroids of the, the band were like, that's, 
you could really get lost in the world that was created by these albums right in that way which is beautiful because that's that's what they want you to see right and like even if it's misguiding like oh well i guess maybe i should bite teachers no but the idea that you can become <laughs> that immersed in it because all you have is a select few images and i think that that plays into like concept records to like another level um and that's yeah. that's it and like it, it's such a kind of a to go on the flip flop of it like a lot of vi like albums now you, the image is condensed right and so is the sound everything is a much smaller experience which is all right you know what i mean because we're carrying around the entire discography of acdc so you can immerse in that yep. way but at the same time being able to take just one sliver of their career and be that obsessed with it is something special yes. and i think that's why when someone shows you a record or, or give it like when you have that first experience where you can really look at it, it impacts more. And what a cool I, environment totally to like the sidetrack grow up in. Cause like music, like, I don't know if you're hip to Victor Wooten, but he's got that whole bit about music being a language. And like it, like when you speak or when you're a baby learning to speak and you start to babble, no one expects you to be like a professional uh, English speaker you're 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 babbling so that's like this thing that's celebrated and like with music it's kind of the opposite well you know you kind of know a song you know go hang out with you can't really hang out with the people that really shred so to be in an environment where like it's so celebrated and everyone's doing it together that's that's a really um profound experience to start off from <laughs> like yeah i'm i'm really grateful for it i don't i don't take it for granted i know it's not necessarily the norm right what's so cool though but it did foster an appreciation for music and the arts uh in our family you know we were also we were like a a movie family where my my yeah. parents would uh you know back in the days of vhs tapes they would record movies from you know showtime and HBO and things. So we would have like a library of VHS tapes with, uh, you know, all these, all these movies on them. And so, um, I, I, I think we were, it was definitely an environment where an appreciation for, for the arts was encouraged and it was considered, uh, normal. Film being like, Man, records are hard to make, but films are like next level. Was there like any particular like directors that were celebrated in your in the household? Um, I didn't become aware of directors until later. Probably the first time I really um, I really became aware of uh, of the work of a particular director and started to really. Uh, you know, focus in on it was, was David Lynch. Okay. Yeah. That guy's deep. Um, because like when I was a kid, I saw the, the movie, uh, the elephant man. Right. And the, you know, the movie had a profound effect on me, but I didn't say to myself who directed this. Um, I just sort of absorbed it as a, as a piece of work. But then later, um, you know, when, when Twin Peaks happened, uh, that's kind of when I was like, oh, 
that's the guy that directed the Elephant Man. Yeah, made the connect. Okay. Yeah, and they're like, oh, I think he also did uh, Blue Velvet. Um, and so I started to kind of connect the dots. Mm. And I okay. also then, um, as a as a kid, I had seen the movie The Shining. Um, my parents let me watch that <laughs> really in retrospect earlier than they should have <laughs> yeah. because because I I I literally had nightmares about being chased by Jack Nicholson for for many years after that. But um, but then, as I got a little older, like into my teens i started to discover um other works by stanley kubrick and uh and connected that to oh this is the guy that directed the shining which is a movie that you know i loved that terrified me as a kid (laughs) that that scarred me for life you know when i was because that movie came out in what like 1980 or 81 i think so yeah because I was I was born in seventy two, so I was eight when it came out, and then I would have been nine when it when it was on you know Showtime, and so that's when I saw it, and we taped it, and I watched it like repeatedly, <laughs> um, not just once, enough to really get it in. Not just once. <laughs> oh no, that's oh, awesome. No. But then later, you know, some years later, I saw like uh, uh, Clockwork Orange, like when I was you know sixteen. Yeah, that's a whole nother. And then I was like, oh, this is the this is the guy that directed The Shining. And you can tell, you know, that's what like in my late teens is when I started to see that there was like a. A, a recognizable kind of thumbprint that directors would put on their movies. And like you could you could watch a little bit of a movie and tell who directed it if you were really paying attention. Yeah, that's a big revelation, especially. It, it it pans out in all art to see like that's the the thing that is that guy or that girl and like that resonates with me i should follow or why is that it's kind of like the self analysis of why is this oh because i saw that then and it's a it's a really profound thing especially when you're younger that kind of pick up that you can leave a thumbprint like that or you can you can even see a a track of someone like that when did uh when did you see the Pope of Greenwich 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 Village? I can't talk today. Yeah. <laughs> when did that film come? Because um, that had a profound effect musically on you guys, at least name wise. It did. It did. Um, and I I, I hate to be uh, I hate to be this guy, but it's actually pronounced Greenwich. Thank you. No, it's fine. Like Greenwich, uh, <laughs> Greenwich Village. Um, that movie was a. <laughs> A late 70s movie. Uh, I'm pretty sure it came out in the late 70s. I might not have seen it until a few years later. So, yeah, right around probably 10, 11, 12 years old is when we were watching uh, that film. And, uh, you know, Mickey Rourke was one of the guys who... uh, we had a particular admiration for uh, as an actor. There was just something, um, something about him. He 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 brought together a few different uh, elements that particularly appealed to me because he was he was cool. Um, 
you know, and he had, there was an aspect of his personality where he was like kind of tough and uh, in, in like an iconoclastic way. But he also has a lot of sensitivity and uh, emotional depth as an actor. I mean, there's like real craft to what he was like, particularly, I mean, he's, he's just a great actor, but he's, he's had such a bizarre trajectory to his, uh, to his career. And he's done a lot of like weird sort of like B movie action, horror, uh, stuff. Um, but you know, during his, that period during the late seventies and, and into the, um, into the eighties, then, um, he would have been an actor that was considered an A-lister, like up there with like a, a dramatic actor who could, uh, who could, you know, get in the ring with, 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 a, with a Robert De Niro and, and hold his own like an angel heart. Um, so he he sort of had it had it all. There was something really uh, that really resonated with me and my brothers about Mickey Rourke as a as an actor. It's inter like it's it's interesting um, the the description of him having this kind of rough angle, but this deep emotional angle that kind of that seems uh, pretty serendipitous to uh, uh, the Pope's musically like. And maybe maybe career wise, but being all over the place in a good way. Do you see any weird like <laughs> commonalities with that where that name kind of came oh, from? I guess now that you mention it, um, <laughs> I could like be projecting the, the, that. But the music, the musical aspect of the Popes is is kind of edgy and uh, aggressive, but then the vocal and songwriting aspects of it are more. Uh, more sensitive and deep emotional so yeah, yeah I, I i wouldn't have made that connection <laughs> before but yeah i think you're right that's I, that's cool that's crazy how like i don't know analyzing when things come from in a way leads to but anyway so the kind of like shift gears they get kind of caught up like so when the speed stick was was hardcore like a thing that influenced you guys at that time even to do it as kind of a joke where you like digging bands like Fugazi and Minor Threat and like uh, Black Flag I'm trying to think early 80s uh, Dead Kennedys and stuff was that like oh. influential, influential or was it kind of like uh, a dig on it then it was fun to do it oh our yeah we definitely loved genuinely loved punk rock and so our idea of being a parody of a punk rock band was not in any way to try to insult punk rock. It was more to embrace. I it. think in the, I think in the spirit of, of, uh, of spinal tap, I think even those guys would say that they actually, they love rock and roll. Definitely. Um, and that, you know, they were, they were, they were poking fun at aspects of it, but they, but they had a basic reverence for, for hard rock. Um, a, a huge, a huge influence for us early on was the Dead Kennedys because because um, of the uh, really inspired creativity of what they were doing musically. Um, 
there was a there's a lot going on in their music um but also the 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 biting sarcasm of Jella Biafra as a vocalist and 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 lyricist uh like he he, he almost you know his songs will be parodies not not of punk music, but like he, he will approach a song like it's a satirical work. Definitely, definitely. It's that's a, that's a really good analogy because I don't know with the Dead Kennedys they they come off in this or even with the Ramones like a lot of their songs are kind of they're funny and but in a in a way that there's so much going on it's hard to like see it for what it is, but that kind of goes back to like that comedic delivery of the truth in a way like sometimes being able to kind of be like huh makes it resonate more and yeah jello's lyrics definitely definitely hit that hard and like i think even his like uh his college career he went for like um advertising and just like everything with him seemed so like sarcasm and i don't know it's awesome but that's and musically too they're kind of like if you're coming off from doing like covers like maiden covers that's a that's an interesting like uh the Dead Kennedys have some maiden-esque guitar parts. Maybe not harmonized, but definitely crunchy and, like, complicated. Right. Um, yeah, that... I mean, I, I like Iron Maiden, but that's not my... Uh, that's not really my wheelhouse gotcha. to have been in, a, to have been in a, like, a maiden cover band. I mean, it was fun <laughs> to do, and my friends... The guys I was friends with back then were really into it, and it was just sort of my first experience of playing in a band right. in front of people. So now when the Popes, after this kind of like um, come to, like we're going to do this seriously, what were you guys still hitting the house venues and the DIY spots, or at this point were you able to get into some like venue venues? Um, the first venue that the, that the Popes started to play at with with any regularity was a place called mcgregor's in elmhurst okay it, it was uh an all-ages place that would have punk shows uh they're they're not in business anymore but um a lot of a lot of bands of of our era that came up in the late 80s early 90s um I mean, I guess the the Pope started when ninety one. Yeah. So, so through the early to mid nineties, this was this was a venue that, um, you know, bands that that couldn't quite get a gig at a place like the Metro. Uh, you know, the McGregor's was more accessible, and plus their shows were all uh, all ages. You know, so and and sort of cheap. So this was like the punk uh hangout in in the northwest suburbs of chicago and it's like one of the first shows that i saw there might have been the first show i saw at mcgregor's was apocalypse hoboken okay and you ended up recording with them or playing with them yeah I, i ended up joining that band i was in in that band for like not quite a year. I think of nine or ten months. I was I was in that band, and 
did a, an EP with them called Punish the Innocent that they recorded at Solid Sound, which is how I met Phil Bonet. Okay. And then the Popes did some records there. Right, a big chunk of records, right? Yeah, we did all our early uh, seven inches there. Um, you know, any, every, anything after Inoculator was recorded there. And then we did Born to Quit was recorded there. And The Party's Over was recorded there. I guess Solid Sound just shut down? Yeah, a couple of years ago. Gotcha. Went out of, went out of business. But yeah, but, and that, you know this was pre-COVID and everything that they shut down. It was just you know their business um, had declined. I went there and visited uh, just a few weeks before they closed and talked to the owner. Yeah, and he he said that the the truth was that they never recovered from Phil Bonet's death. Hmm. Uh, because Phil Bonet was their, their primary engineer who did yeah. most most of the sessions that took place there. And after Phil died, um, a lot of their clients just didn't right. come back because they, you know, they, it was a great studio, but they were there to work with Phil. Right. Yeah, so much of a of a studio is the artist, you know, if it's recording yeah. or if it's painting or whatever. Um, the room just like illuminates the person within it. Um, damn, yeah, that's rough. That's rough to kind of continue on when someone was that big of a part of it. Um, and especially, I don't. It also technology had to throw in a wrench too, because like now people can make an album on their phone without setting boom boxes next to each other <laughs> and keep the drums to sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, got a little more leg exactly. up at the home demos. <laughs> yep. So yeah, you... and also after you know the the music the music industry changed in various ways that made um, that made it more and more difficult for people to have like a budget to record. But I don't know. That's another can of worms. Yeah. Well, is it because it, it takes time? You know, recording takes time, if, and it takes multiple people's time. And like, if you want it to get done right, or or you you put that you invest that time somewhere else in learning how to do a kind of okay recording, but it takes time on multiple. Even music, music is the capturing of time to some degree, like or all degree. I don't know, but like, oh man, it's a but to yeah. kind of sh- shift gears from my spacey thought. Um. When did, so you guys are playing, and eventually you get an opening spot for Green Day. What was that like? And do you can you recall what that where that spot was? I think it was at the Riviera. Okay. And uh, I remember that we we found out that we had that gig by reading about it in the uh, Illinois Entertainer. <laughs> uh, okay. I guess yeah. we'll show up. <laughs> we, 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 yeah, we look we look in there and we see an ad for the Riv and it says, you know, Green Day, special guest, Smoking Popes. And that's the first we heard about it. Um, and so we knew, that, and the Green Day, this was, what, 90, 
three or four. This was right when Dookie had right. come out and Green Day so was four. Green Day was huge. Yeah. Yeah. Ninety four. So Green Day was huge. And so that show, you know, sold out show at the Riv. So uh we see our name on the on the ad for it. And so we contacted the guy who uh, the promoter of the show and we were like, uh is this a is this a misprint? Like why are we listed as the opening band? And he said, oh, yeah, Green Day, uh, they asked for you guys specifically. They requested you to open for them. And uh, that's sick. I figured uh, I figured there's no way you'd say no to it. So I just right. uh, went ahead and put you down. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. You're right. We were going to say yes to that for sure. Uh, yes, we were going to agree to that. But, um, you know, it's funny that you went ahead and committed to that in print right without even talking to us that yeah that is a little sketchy like assuming that like promoter, we were free. yeah that, that promoter was was pretty sketchy and i don't think he's still working anymore but um anyway that that was an amazing gig and our association with green day kind of launched us into the world of uh, the major labels because right. pretty soon after that Green Day's managers decided to start a record label and they asked us we were the first band that they contacted to be on that label and we we ultimately didn't sign with them but the fact that they had contacted us was the first domino that got tipped as far as like yeah. major labels becoming aware of us. Right. So, and I, so it, it started what, what, you know, what became a bidding war for the, for us to sign. That had to be a whole nother view of the music industry from that point. Now you're working with people giving big numbers and contracts and stuff. Yeah. What was it? Um, yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> That's insane. That's insane for a gig that you didn't try to get, but you got. <laughs> that's that's incredible. And, like, what was it like hanging out with, I mean, I imagine the band, the guys in the Green Day band, like, they, I imagine they were super cool and supportive. They were really cool, and then we ended up uh, encountering them a couple other times. One time we were, we were touring in California, and uh, Billy Joe had us over to his house, this was like right when we had signed or in the process. Oh no, this was like right when the, in the middle of the bidding war. So it was probably like the, the year, you know, within a year after that show, we were out in California, we were on tour, but we were also like meeting with all these labels. Yeah. And in the middle of that, uh, Billy Joe invited us to come over to his house and we spent about an hour over there. Um, and we saw his, uh, he had a studio, home studio in his basement. And he played us a demo of a song that he had just finished recording. And it, you know, wound up subsequently on a Green Day record. But we heard this early demo of it in his basement. It's pretty Whoa, cool. He, so he, he's a really cool guy. Like, he just was very friendly and approachable and, and, and nice. And then another time, uh, Trey came to one of our shows and was hanging out and also very nice, friendly dudes who just seemed 
pretty down to earth despite their massive fame. Right. And like with a group like that, that's still, you know, that's still made, like moving and still um, continuing their career. What like lessons did you learn from from those experiences or maybe just observing them like as like the the um, senior class band? Yeah, well, I think one of the secrets of Green Day's success has been their willingness to evolve creatively while still seeming to have an understanding of what it is that people like about them. So they maintain Mm -hmm. some core element of their identity, but they also aren't afraid to try different things and, and to kind of, uh, you know, not get stuck in a rut. Seems like a fine line. That's not easy to balance, but yes. Yes, it can be. Um, and so after that, um, you guys started like touring with like, and once, once all that got figured out and hitting the road with some like fairly big names at the time, like the violent Femmes and the Foo Fighters, yeah, uh, we played a few times, a handful of times with the Violent Femmes, and um, we met. Th- this is th- is something that's interesting to me is like when you meet a band, just the the, the different uh, the different personalities of the band members. There'll be like one member of the band who's like really outgoing, and so you you end up, you know, having a conversation with that person, but then somebody else in the band is like, you know, an introvert. Uh, so you never talk to them. And, and that was basically the case with, uh, the violent Femmes. We had a bunch of conversations with the, the bass player. Um, but never spoke to Gordon Gano. Hmm. Um, would see him hanging around, but he just kept to himself. And would just sort of be, you'd, you'd see him like occasionally walking in and out of, the, of, of like their dressing room, but he never would come over and he just kind of kept to himself. And it's not, you know, in a situation like that, you don't go up to him and be like, hey, man, thanks, yeah. you, thanks for having <laughs> us on the show. Good to meet you. You guys are great. You know, you just, you, you wait, you, you, you sort of let him take the lead and that was also the case with like we played uh a few times with cheap trick wow and uh right like the bass player maybe it's a thing with bass players bass <laughs> players really just tend to be outgoing but their their bass player would come over and talk to us and just hang out and we'd have long conversations with them um uh but robin zander would keep to himself and uh, I only had one brief conversation with Robin Zander, and that's only because I was introduced to him by our manager who who owned who owned the Metro, and so he had a relationship with uh, with the band, and sort of like I wouldn't have just walked up to Robin Zander and started talking to him, but but he was just more more elusive and enigmatic. Um, Probably the most surprisingly outgoing and down-to-earth famous person I met in that regard was Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters. 
Yeah, he who, seems like an outgoing. By the time we played with them, like the man was already a, an icon. He was like a rock icon. But we played with them. I think this might have also been at the Riv. Because uh, I remember being downstairs before the show. We're sitting in our dressing room. Just sort of, you know, twiddling our thumbs. And then Dave Grohl walks in and says, hey, guys, I'm Dave. <laughs> Great to meet you. Thanks for playing. He goes around, shakes our hands, starts talking to us in sort of a gregarious fashion. And uh, immediately, you know, sort of put us at ease about him. Like he was right. just incredibly approachable. Um, yeah, so that was, that was fun. But it's fascinating, okay. um, the dynamic between groups and like, it, it's interesting, that's an interesting comparison with a lot of bass players that are kind of outgoing and like, it makes sense that maybe the singer songwriter is a little more introverted and like, or, and like focused on like a bunch of different things happening. Um, now with the Popes, eventually you guys like, you guys tour with Morrissey and like, he was a fan of your guys. Like what? What lessons did Morrissey um, bestow upon? Oh, what lessons? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it was it was pretty amazing to just watch him perform every night. Yeah. It was uh, an approach an approach to stage performance that he had that we got to study night after night um and had a couple of very interesting conversations with him he's a extremely intriguing and interesting person to talk to um he just he says kind of unusual things yeah <laughs> <laughs> like what <laughs> Um, well, like when we were on tour with them, uh, he's another person who you didn't, you didn't approach right. him. You kind of waited for him to, to make the approach. So he would come up to us sometimes while we were doing our sound checks. He did, he did this a few times on tour where he would come onto the stage and come over to me and say hello and then he would ask me a question specifically about the lyrics to some of our songs hmm. like he he uh we have a song called let's hear it for love and uh you know there's a uh one of the lyrics in there is uh let's hear it for bucket seats let's try it like this and but he came up to me at a sound check and said hello, and he said, I'm just curious, you know, what's a bucket seed? And I said, well, it's in a car if, you know, in, it's usually in the front seat. If the seat isn't connected, it's not one long seat. It's like two separate seats. It's a bucket seat. And he goes, oh, bucket seat. I thought you were saying bucket seed, S-E-E-D. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, it's seat. I've never heard of a bucket seat. And he's like, neither have I. That's why I was confused. <laughs> That's awesome. And then 
and then uh, the event's like the end of the conversation. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just took it that not only that he had a question, but also there was sort of a gesture on his part to come over and to let me know that he listened to our right. music, paid attention to the lyrics, and wanted to know about the, the what they meant. Right. Like it was sort of a, a gesture, you know, like between between artists. Yeah. Obviously the 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 greater artist sort of bestowing some generosity on the lesser artist by saying I consider your work to be valid enough to listen to and pay attention to and think about. So I think that's sort of where he was coming from, which was like just sort of a interesting approach to conversation. Like I never knew what it was going to be when he came over and talked to me. That's so cool. That's so cool. They contemplate in it. And like, I guess like if you're going to talk to Morrissey or maybe even anyone in general, if you go on and approach them with an, like an actual question, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of conversations and I'm sure you, you've experienced much more um, in your line of work is just kind of like, Hey, how's it going? The weather, you know I mean? There's a lot of small talk and not too many people kind of dive deep right away. So they have someone that doesn't yeah. kind of mess around with it and just waits to be like, here's a deep question. <laughs> like, that's so rad. Yeah. Um, and it's, but like, I also, I, I took Morrissey to be a person who communicates through his work. Right. More so than the average person, like, like his, I don't know, he, he's, he's sort of a very enigmatic person, but my understanding is that he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of close, uh, close relationships mm. in his life. And I've known like, uh, it reminds me of something that I, I read in an interview, uh, an interview with Tom Waits where he was talking about Ricky Lee Jones because he used to be uh, romantically involved with uh, Ricky Lee Jones back in the 70s and 80s. But he described her as being a person who, who like needed her work in order to express herself um, more than the average person did because there are ways that she seemed unable to express herself hmm. in personal relationships that she relied on her art right to um to be that sort of connecting point between her and the, the outside world and uh i thought that was interesting of him to say that about her but i i recognized that potentially in morrissey i think he uh he kind of sees if you're an artist he sort of sees it that way, that the art that you're putting out there, like that is your connection point to the, the rest of the world. Right. And so for him to be speaking about lyrics, uh, that that is like the basis of like what a relationship or a friendship could be, I suppose. Right. Well, he's talking shop. He's talking the one thing he definitely knows how to do and sharing that with <laughs> you. Like that's, that's, that's super deep. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to like, like the, to fathom that like that's insane <laughs> like that's so cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's so cool 
Um, kind of like the shift gears for a second. One thing I didn't really, I've, what I've been wondering about, like, okay. With, and just, just to let you know, I've got, I've got about maybe 10 more minutes and then I, I have another thing I got to do. So, okay. I'll boil it down to like three questions. Um, um, with singing style, um, this idea that there's like this crooning and this punk was that like that can't couldn't have been like an intended thing, but you grew up around with like country artists and, and um, Frank Sinatra and all these different influences. Was this just what was comfortable, or was this just like kind of a weird amalgamation of different styles and just what happened? Like um, as far as your approach to singing with the Popes. Um, well, if, if you listen to our our stuff from our earlier seven inches, I had a different vocal style where I, I wasn't doing much vibrato. Uh, I was doing more of kind of a shouting mm. thing. I mean, there, there would be, I, I still was writing melodies, but um, my delivery uh, wasn't very croony. Um, the crooning thing is something that um, I started to incorporate on our first full-length album because of the song Let's Hear It For Love. Gotcha. Uh, it, it seemed to me that, that when we were recording that song, that it would be fitting because of the, because of the vibe of the song it would be fitting to try to deliver that like a crooner, especially right. when it got to that line in the chorus that said, let's hear it for love. Like it just, uh, that seemed very uh, loungy. Right. And like kind of Dean Martin-y. And so in the studio recording that song was the first time I, I really uh, went for it with the vibrato. And it, I remember like, trying a, a take of that song and, and like cracking up because it seemed funny to be doing it that way. But we, but we kept it and, uh, and it ended up sort of permeating uh, my, my vocal style in general. Wow. I don't know. I'm sort of yeah. convinced that a lot of things that certain artists do were supposed to be funny when they first happened, but then they got, they got sort of, you know, taken seriously somewhere along the way. <laughs> got called out for it and like, what you're doing is important. You're like, uh, huh? <laughs> like, that's well, awesome. Like, like I'm, I'm thinking of like, say the talking heads. Right. You know, like the first time he decided to put on a giant suit that was like right right that five, size, five, five <laughs> sizes too big for him with like coat hangers in it that was going to make it like shake right you know like that suit looks completely ridiculous and i'm i just i, I don't know this but in my mind right i picture him the first time he put that suit on he just cracks up and everybody in the band who sees it, like they're, they're just like, they're like, that is the most absurd thing we've ever seen, David. You yeah, know, there's definitely that, that comfort of making stuff joyous. I guess when it comes down to like performance, that's, 
we're trying that's what you're trying to do is is bring joy or or spark some tor- uh sort of like um grand avail of some self knowledge and i imagine that comes better through joy than some other uh, emotions and it's interesting that the um the kind of comedic uh, uh um cushion has led to all these really deep um uh insights and especially musically with your career um Another question I had to kind of shift gears because I know we're running out of time is uh the book Mere Christianity. What role? How important is that? And what can you tell me about how much that book resonated with you? Oh, that book completely changed my life. Um, I had uh, this is uh this this will be a real condensed version of of the story, but like. I was at a point in my life where I was I was looking for truth. I was looking for God. Uh, and I had a I had a feeling that that uh, that Jesus was somehow the key, like he knew what was going on. Like as I was kind of studying the religious figures that uh, exist in the world, you know, reading about Buddhism and, and uh, you know, different schools of thought, Eastern philosophy and things. And, 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 and then Jesus, uh, I felt like, Jesus somehow had the key to to really knowing God, but I didn't know. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't attracted to Christianity. I I didn't I didn't feel like Christianity resonated with me. I had a lot of questions about how I was supposed to interpret the things that Jesus was saying. And in a nutshell, reading that book answered. Uh, a lot of the basic questions I had about who is Jesus and what am I supposed to do with, with him and his teachings? Uh, how, how am I supposed to apply that to my life? And what, and what does it actually mean to be a, a Christian? Because it turns out that a lot of my sort of, um, resistance to Christianity as a religion was, was based on certain stereotypes that I had and misunderstandings that I had, but he boiled it down in a way that um, presented to me the the core of what it meant to be a Christian in a way that illuminated my mind in, 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 in a way that permanently transformed my life. It's beautiful. That's a, it's in with, with a Christianity, there's so many different like subsects of it. And yeah, it's just, it's hard even like even reading passages from the Bible. They're, they're dense. They're hard to understand. And like to, to boil things down and like find something that makes it clear is amazing. Um, and that's when after all, like that kind of like Duvall, am I saying that right? That project kind of spun out somewhere in the midst of a uh, um oh yeah cuz like that yeah like du- duval is the right way to say it it's basically okay. the band is named after robert duval got it um 
Another, okay, another, okay, interesting. Yeah, so uh, that was, I had, I had quit the smoking popes because of my newfound Christian faith, and Duval was uh, sort of a, what turned out to be an intermediate project for me. I wanted to get back into playing rock music, but I wasn't ready to re-embrace the popes. So the Duval was like a Christian version of the smoking popes. Yeah. In those records. Stylistically, stylistically, I think it sounds fairly similar to the smoking popes, but lyrically um, there are sort of themes of, of faith and and some theological ideas that are being worked out in the lyrics of that song. Yeah, those, of those records of are those great. songs. Um, so the kind of I guess my last question, because I know we're running out of time, is this new record, this new live album you're putting out. Um, it's a it's a charity, right? For um, hide out the venue. Um, it's not a charity album, um, but it it was it was recorded at the hideout and it's sort of the idea of it is that it would be, um, you know, recording a live album at us at an independent venue in Chicago, uh, would, would be helpful to, uh, that venue and sort of bring attention to independent venues in Chicago. I mean, we have information on the back of the record about the, uh, Chicago Independent Venue League uh, and their website information. So it is, you know, a, a sort of encouraging people to check out those uh, those organizations that are helping, you know, local venues. And so it, it's it's definitely like community minded. Um, it's a project that is supposed to be um, connective in the local uh, music community. And it was so amazingly fun to do but it's like from the beginning of our conversation you know we were talking about performing in empty rooms right and uh it definitely was um that to some degree uh, it was that and it was it was it was unusual uh in that regard because it was a it was a live performance that was being you know filmed and and uh live streamed uh so we were being watched but there was only a few people in the room there was a camera person and a couple of uh, sound engineers um so we you know on the stage you just sort of have to generate your own energy but also (laughs) i i wasn't i wasn't primarily concerned with giving a, a physical performance as much as i was playing the right notes because I knew that we were capturing this for an album. Right. And I didn't, I didn't want to have to do any overdubs or, or studio fixes of the stuff. Um, so, so I was kind of restrained in my performance cause I was, I was just focusing on playing the right notes and I'm glad I did <laughs> because now I hear the record and you know, it's, it's a little loose in spots. So it has that feel of a live performance, but it's pretty, uh, pretty accurate. There's, there's no real discernible flubbed notes on it. So I'm, I'm happy about it. I think that's, that's kind of the key with all music is let's get it. As long as the audience can't hear the flub, it's good. 
And you had a new personnel for this project, right? So were they yes. kind of just learning the tunes as well? Um, it's uh, a couple of guys that I've known for many years, but we've never played in a band together. Uh, John Perrin, who plays drums in NRBQ. Yeah. And then John San Juan, who is the uh, singer, guitar player for a band called The Hush Drops, but he's also a multi-instrumentalist. I knew that he played bass, and uh, I asked him to play bass on this. And it, those guys are this incredible rhythm section who are so creative and bring so much inspiration to it. And what we did is we got together and started working on um, a collection of of cover songs, but they're they're old cover songs, right. like um, like we do a, a, a cover of uh, My Funny Valentine, and we do we do a version of I Only Have Eyes for You, and so these songs are all like fifty, sixty, seventy years old. Some real look tunes. Um, yeah, they're like you know they're 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 from the the Sinatra era. Right. Um, and that's, that's something that the Popes had explored on an album that we did called the party's over, but we did a bunch of old standards and we kind of did them in our own, in our own style. And I wanted to continue to explore that idea, but this time with different musicians. God. Yeah. You guys and so there's the... 10 songs. Yeah. There's 10 songs in the album. Six of them are, covers of other people four of them are covers of my own songs <laughs> where we would take uh songs that i wrote for the smoking popes but rearrange them and sort of like break them down and and build them up again in a completely different way with like different uh different rhythms different tempos different time signatures um and so treating those as if they were covers as well so it, it's interesting that was that what was the thought process of covering yourself and trying to rearrange was that complicated or was it more comforting it was it was just fun like everything yeah. about this project nice. was was just just pure fun because um because you know when when you're when you're writing a song there's a variety of ways that you could approach it right you know, just because the Smoking Popes recorded it at a certain tempo or with a, with a certain with a certain arrangement doesn't mean that's the only way you could do it. Um, there were, you know, there were infinite ways that we could have chosen to do that song in the first place. Right. And so, but you commit you commit to one for your album, and then you're sort of locked into that for the rest of your uh, <laughs> career. And this was just a chance for me to liberate some of those songs from their original arrangement and in the process i wanted to put those songs side by side with some of these old songs that i was inspired by as a songwriter for example there's there's a song that we cover on this album called what kind of fool am i which uh, i've always thought that that need you around is sort of a uh, an an homage to the song "What Kind of Fool Am I?" If you put those songs next to each other, there's a similarity in the in the cadence of the melody and the phrasing of it. Um, 
so I wanted to put both those those songs are back to back on the album and you can kind of see the connection between them. That's cool. That's cool. Like so that's that was one of the ideas of this record is to do that. It's interesting because like a lot of like old like uh, country tunes will take uh, they'll do uh, certain artists will do a play on almost the same melody but change the lyrics and the same chord progression and like make it a whole different yep. song. Or even like Dylan's current career, like he just takes what you expect him to do and completely rearranges it, and you don't even know what it is. And you're like, "Oh, it's Tangled in Blue, uh, in blue now," because he said it <laughs> at this one point. Yep. Totally. Well, totally. that's awesome. I heard the one track on Bandcamp that you can uh, listen to, and it sounds really cool. And um, it's a really, oh, thank you. it's a really cool like uh, way to pay uh, like homage to all these artists that you've um, that you've dug their songs and mix them with yours and with your group and the current uh, personnel. And to yeah. make it a communal thing, so that's that's really awesome. Um, cool, I'm glad you like it, man. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for hanging out and talking. Um, I really appreciate your time. Uh, does your guitar? Oh, sure, man. Thanks. Um, still, uh, use cigarettes to get rid of the buzz. Um, <laughs> no, but no? I, oh, no, no, but I still, I still have that guitar with the piece of a cigarette pack that Phil Bonet put it on it. I still, it's still there. Beautiful. All and right. every time I change the strings on that guitar, I'm careful to make sure that that piece of cardboard does not fall out. That has to be pretty tattered by now, but I'm glad it still works. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been there for like 20 years. Yeah. 